Time to welcome in once again vaccine researcher and family physician, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel joins us. Dr. Gorfinkel, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Okay, let's start with the monkeypox again this week because Canada's public health agency issuing a travel notice uh, today. Uh, Just how concerned should we be, should travelers be when it comes to uh, traveling and monkeypox? Yeah, so what they're trying to do is increase awareness around it. Basically know what it does. After one to three weeks after getting exposed to the disease, people develop flu-like symptoms, and they don't even do that all the time, but fever, chills, sweats, fatigue, and then a week later get a rash. And the rash looks kind of like chickenpox. It starts in the mouth from a flat little red spot into pustules that spread through the body. And there can be lots of them or very few of them. Now, there have been no deaths in Canada yet, but it is a bit concerning that Quebec reports 90 cases, 9-0 cases at this point. You know, we've got a case now in British Columbia and in Alberta. Here in Ontario, we've had five cases. Now, consider the population of Ontario. This is not a super fast-spreading disease. It's not going to become the next pandemic, but it is important to know that it spreads through close contact. We're talking about contact with blood or body fluids or heavy respiratory droplets, meaning you have to be close to the person. It also can spread through bedding and clothing. But the purpose of that travel notice is to increase the awareness around it and to say, if you do have those symptoms, you should isolate. And they put out a bit of a warning as well. Know that healthcare in many countries is very limited right now. And they warn people about that. All right. The first case of monkeypox, as you mentioned a moment ago in B.C., detected earlier this week and nearing 100, as you also mentioned, in Quebec. Uh, can you give us an idea where we are here in Canada when it comes to monkeypox in relation to just a week ago? Well, a week ago, we were at about half of those numbers. So the numbers have gone up significantly. But that's not to say that the doubling time of the disease is going to continue on that trajectory. It's not expected to. And what we're doing is we're vaccinating those individuals. So nearly a thousand vaccines have been given out to all of the contacts of those individuals. Those individuals are being put into isolation. And it's interesting. I, we mentioned this last week that pets in the UK are also being asked to isolate. So they're really trying hard to keep the circle of individuals who have this to an absolute minimum. Keep in mind, if you're comparing it to Omicron, Omicron typically spreads to 12 people. This typically will spread to less than one person. It is far less contagious. Plus, we don't believe it's the same shape shifter that the novel coronavirus is. It doesn't, it doesn't change rapidly. We do have effective vaccinations against it. But that's being used only in individuals who've had direct contact with someone known to have monkeypox. Okay, and for all of those reasons, is that why, is that why this is not considered to be the next pandemic? Because obviously when this first appeared in the news a few weeks ago, uh, that was, uh, I think, a concern of many. Well, it, it appeared in the news because normally you only see monkeypox in Central and West Africa. And then all of a sudden we're seeing it in a whole slew of other countries in which people have not even traveled who have it. So that's an indication of community spread. So it could be that the virus has mutated a little bit because of that community spread. And Central and West Africa it was largely from animal to person that it spread. And now we're seeing it in these communities. 
So, but still, it's not a highly, highly contagious virus. People are sick, you know, so therefore can isolate. Unlike the novel coronavirus, where there's asymptomatic spread, there's pre-symptomatic spread. And that's a serious problem. It's also a far more contagious disease. You can't even compare the two. All right, let's move to COVID next, because the Ontario government's uh, last remaining mask mandates, they are set to expire, Dr. Gorfinkel, later this week. Uh, The mandate for settings deemed high risk, previously uh, set to be lifted back in April, they were extended to June the 11th, which is uh, this Saturday. Is the timing right? Oh, it's such a big question. So there are factors that would seem to favor it. So if you look at Ontario, our case numbers are not just at a low. They're at an all-time low since the start of the pandemic. But then on the other hand, so is testing. So can we rely on that? Well, wastewater signals are down a bit. Hospitalizations are super down. ICU are are down. So all that's good. But the concern that I have is what defines a pandemic? Let's come back to that. It's worth coming in peaks and valleys, right? So now, great, we're at a low time in a a valley, but we can't kid ourselves. The pandemic is far from over. We're going to have another peak again. That peak may happen in the fall. It may happen sooner. We don't know for sure. We have a new study suggesting it's not just about long COVID, that in fact having a COVID infection may increase the risk of some 26 medical conditions over the following 12 months. You know, so in the U.S., we also see a bit of an uptick in both cases and deaths. Now, true, it's still at an overall historic low. But the problem is the peaks and valleys that define a pandemic are still on us. So we can't, I I think it's a bit, it may be a bit too early, especially in high risk settings like healthcare. In my own office, am I letting go of masks? Not on your life. Who's coming to see me? High risk individuals. They need to be wearing their masks. I'm talking about elderly, chronic conditions, et cetera. Well, I was about to ask, just because the mandate is lifted doesn't mean that you have to lift your mask. You can still use your mask. Uh, where would you recommend people, uh, you know, if they're trying to decide, uh, where would you recommend mask wearing uh, still continue for people? If you can smell cigarette smoke, that's the place you need to do it. You know, so any public space, any space in which the ceiling is low, the air circulation is poor, the windows aren't open, the doors aren't open, there's lots of people gathering. Those are places that especially high-risk individuals need to keep in mind. You got the N95? Congratulations, you're going to cut your risk. Four out of five cases you won't get. Now, it's not a perfect thing. We get it. You know, what about a cloth mask? That's going to prevent half of the cases. So if you can get your hands on a, you know, an N95, that works a lot better. But this is another aspect. If we take away masks at this point, and it's really left to the individual institution to decide, by the way. So it's not to say, oh, you, you know, you'll never have to wear masks. You come to Dr. Iris Gorfinkel's office, you're still going to need that mask, period. Now, a lot of long-term care is probably, is ex- they're expected to carry through with that as well. But it's not certain at this point what the Toronto Transit Commission will do. What we know is the mandates are down, but it's left to the individual institution to determine their individual rules. All right. I also want to ask you, let's go from uh, masks to uh, vaccines and what is considered fully vaccinated. Is it time that we uh, at least uh, start having that uh, conversation that uh, a fourth shot, a second uh, booster is considered uh, fully vaccinated? I think that conversation began months and months ago. 
But what really is sparking it now is a new trial put out by the British Medical Journal. You have to hand it to these researchers. They looked at no less than 53 studies. Get this, 100 million subjects. I mean, it's crazy. They looked at so many people to determine what is the best way to be vaccinated. And they looked at literally uh, how many, uh, let me see if I've got that written down. They they looked at some 24 combinations. That's the number, 24 combinations of all the major vaccines that are out there. So here's a a mix and match study. And what they found is that it is a three-dose vaccine. It's a three-dose vaccine probably for everyone. Because if somebody has two doses, it doesn't lock in long-term immunity. Three doses reduce both symptomatic and asymptomatic infections. Three doses are key in reducing hospitalizations and especially key in reducing Omicron. And in fact, the authors call it a requirement to reduce Omicron. So what does the Public Health Agency of Canada do? We're still here in Canada defining fully vaxxed as two doses. And you know what? They're not alone. So does the World Health Organization. But this study could turn things around because it's so well done, you know, and comprehensive in terms of the number of people it's looking at. And basically, you know, if you look at what's happening here in Canada, less than half of all Canadians have that third dose. Now, fine, push me against the wall. It's, it's people 12 and up. Even then, it's less than three out of five who got that third dose. We are seeing significant vaccine uh, fatigue. Like people are happy to get those two doses. You know, we're practically at nine and 10 of Canadians who's having two doses. But the problem is that third dose. That's where the fatigue is kicking in. And I think that that definition, it's not just a, a theoretical definition. It's a definition that may cause people to say, wait a second, I'm not fully there yet. So that definition matters and it matters a lot. Mm-hmm. So people are saying, well, keep it up to date, up to date. Well, up to date is three doses unless a person is either over 60 in Ontario, if they're from an indigenous community or living in a congregate chronic facility, all of those individuals need a fourth dose. Yes, it's a moving target. Yes, we may have, you know, an Omicron specific vaccination. I get all that. But for now, fully vaxxed is three doses. And doctor, getting a lot of buzz is news of this cancer trial in which every patient in the study went into remission. What more can you tell us about this study and this drug in which the uh, cancer uh, vanished in every single patient in the study? Yeah, it is really exciting news. But I hate to rain on the parade just a little bit. So this is published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it's a very specific cancer called adenocancer of the rectum. Now, these patients, how many were they? Okay, there were 12 of them. And they had locally advanced tumors, nothing distant. They didn't, no distant spread. So they didn't have metastases in the bones or the lungs. It was just like located in or around the rectum. But what was fascinating is that they gave these patients these treatments every three weeks for six months And lo and behold, after the six months, they couldn't find any evidence of any tumor whatsoever. And not on physical examination, not when they did a colonoscopy, not when they did even an MRI scan. They really couldn't find any tumor. And they followed them for six months after that, and they seemed to be totally fine, which is pretty exciting. 
All right, so I'll rain on the parade a little bit. So how much did it cost? $88,000 U.S. Okay, so that was the cost of just the drug. Now, what else? It's a really small study. You know, so this is a bit of an issue, right? They don't take into account race, gender. They didn't take into account other conditions the patient may have had. So we certainly need a lot more information before it's ready for prime time. But even so, this new drug is at least a proof of concept. You know, so there were no significant side effects, which sound great. Now, usually this class of drugs... It's a it's an antibody actually. This class is known to cause pretty significant side effects. You know, I'm talking trouble swallowing, trouble just you know with, with basic muscle function. That happens in one of 20 individuals, but that's a problem when the study only involves a dozen people. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is this is this is what that where we're at with that study so far. But it is exciting. Yeah. So this needs further study, further examination, perhaps a uh, bigger uh, sampling. But uh, as you say, this is encouraging. Does this mean that we're perhaps maybe just maybe a step closer to an eventual cure? It could be, but it's a very small step. Understand, what is a cancer cell? A cancer cell is where a cell suddenly mutates and divides uncontrollably. And the problem is, is that cancer cells can escape the body's immunity. Now, as it turns out, it's not just one mutation. They're made of multiple different types of mutations within the same cancer. So what does that tell you? You you knock them off, and then a year later, they come back. Two years later, they come back. So this study definitely needs further follow-up. It's kind of like antibiotics. You kill off what's sensitive to that particular antibiotic, you know, in this sense, sense, chemotherapy, and what does that leave behind? The cancer cells that are not sensitive to that therapy. So before we get overly excited, we have to have a larger, you know, group, obviously, and then we also need, you know, a longer-term follow-up in that group. All right. Just uh, finally, in our remaining moments, speaking of studies, we also have new research this week that suggests that it's uh, not just the uh, brain telling the body what to do, but the, that communication actually is a two-way. It turns out, Dr. Gorfinkel, that the body has, uh, well, plenty to say to the brain as well. Absolutely. When it comes to exercise, this is so cool. And I love the fact that the protein responsible for improving memory after exercise is named after me. <laughs> not really, not really, <laughs> but it is called irisin. And it turns out that when people exercise, the muscles make more irisin, and irisin then improves brain function. It improves memory. It improves the body, the brain's ability to make new neurons. How cool is this? So these are rat studies, but they have tremendous implications. When mice, not rats, mice you know, produce a lot of this irisin. They exercise on the wheels. The muscles produce irisin. Irisin goes to the brain. And then what do you know? The brain winds up having more nerves in the center responsible for memory. And not only are there more nerves, there's also more connections between those nerves. So this is really impressive research that may have tremendous implications in how we treat things like Alzheimer's. You know, can we improve on the way we treat brain injury? You know, so one of the theories is that irisin, this protein produced by muscles after exercise, is capable of regenerating neurons. It may calm inflammation. So, so it is pretty exciting stuff.
Mm -hmm. Do we know how long and how often you've got to exercise to see some of these benefits? Well, we know from other studies, this is separate from Irison, but exercise works in in a myriad of ways. So what happens when we exercise? You know, not only does the heart pump harder and faster, but it also exercises the arteries, which also have a muscle lining, and that lowers blood pressure. And it's just amazing how all these things interrelate. You exercise, you improve both quantity and quality of sleep. The mood improves. Blood pressure goes down. Appetite goes down. The ability to sleep goes up. You know, so all of these things interact. And it could be that each of these things, you know, it's a complex thing. Mm -hmm. All improve memory. We know exercise does improve mental health. It reduces the amount of, you know, symptoms and schizophrenia. And it does improve Alzheimer's. You bet. Just some fascinating, fascinating stuff. Dr. Gorfinkel, much appreciated as always. We will talk again next week. Always of interest. (laughs) All the best. Many thanks. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.